From the Medical Republic, I'm Wendy John. This is The Tea Room. But it's not your regular Tea Room episode. No, this is the first in a series of podcasts we're doing about long COVID. They're longer podcasts, but they're jam-packed with really important information that, I don't know, love to hear what you think about them. We're interviewing two experts today. One is Professor Martin Henscher, a professor in health economics and epidemiology, who has been modelling long COVID stats for Australia. So anyone who's had their hands over their ears humming whenever long COVID is mentioned, well, you probably need to stick around to hear what Professor Henscher's research predicts. But first cab off the rank today is Professor Anthony L. Komarov from Harvard University. I'm asking him about the parallels in underlying biology between long COVID and myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome, so ME-CFS. Professor Komarov also has a theory or two about what actually is going on with long COVID and what doctors can do about it. Dr. Komarov serves as the distinguished Simcox Clifford Higby Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and is Senior Physician at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Welcome to the Tea Room, Professor Komarov. Thanks very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Wendy. Now, you're considered an expert in the field of myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome, and I was really interested in a recent paper that was published in Trends in Molecular Medicine where you're speculating that the pathogenesis of post-COVID-19 syndrome, or what some of us are calling long COVID, in some people may be similar to that of ME, chronic fatigue syndrome. Would you be able to give us a little bit of an insight into what your research is starting to show you? Well, I would broaden that question to say what everyone's research is showing, because the research I've done is just a small fraction of what is being done in the field. So that paper was, we were speculating that the two illnesses which have many clinical similarities probably also had many underlying biological similarities. But we, there wasn't a lot of data yet to say that. I would say in the last year, that prophecy is looking more likely mm. as studies from all over the world uh, start to come in on pe- people with long COVID. Like MECFS, uh, there's growing evidence that In both groups, there is evidence of chronic immune activation, particularly neuroinflammation in the brain, that there are many autoantibodies, including many that target the central nervous system and autonomic nervous system. Whether those autoantibodies are actually having functional Uh, effects on the nervous system hasn't yet been as solidly established. There also is growing evidence that the autonomic nervous system function is defective in both illnesses, whether that's caused by autoantibodies or something else remains uncertain. There's evidence that in both conditions, energy metabolism is adversely affected. The ability of the body to make molecules of ATP from glucose, from lipids, from amino acids, and from oxygen is impaired. Uh, And the ability of cells to utilize circulating oxygen in the blood also appears to be impaired. So energy metabolism is throttled down 
by mechanisms we don't fully understand in both conditions. Also some evidence that the microbiome of the gut is abnormal in both conditions. In particular, that species of bacteria that are pro-inflammatory are more common in the gut and that species of bacteria that are anti-inflammatory are less common in the gut, leading to a chronic low-grade uh, um, inflammation in the gut wall that may well generate systemic inflammation and may even activate neuroinflammation in the brain. So those are uh, some, just some of the parallels in underlying biology that have been pretty well established in MECFS and that look like they also are present in long COVID. It's mm, interesting, the gut biome um, composition and abundance of different uh, organisms in the gut is also reflective in some way to what we see in rheumatology and gut composition of some rheumatological diseases. Yep. What have you found most interesting about this space in your research, more recently as more data is coming through? What strikes me about MECFS and now about long COVID is that so many different biological systems seem to be abnormal. It seems like almost everywhere you look in the underlying biology, there, there's something wrong. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's one striking observation. And to me, the corollary, that's the second striking observation is if in fact that's true, that people with these two illnesses have all of these different systems that are awry, that must, there must be a reason for that. There must be a coordinated process that accounts for that. As in an underlying predisposition for that kind of... Exactly. An underlying predisposition that causes much of the aberrant underlying biology. Mm. So, for example, why would so many different ways of generating ATP all appear to be defective? Uh, if you had just shown a defect in converting glucose to ATP and everything else was fine, well, that, that would be nice, that'd be simple, and, and it would give you a target. But if what you're finding is that energy metabolism is broadly downregulated, you have to start thinking, could there be a reason for that? Could the body be instructing all of the molecular pathways that generate ATP to be saying to those pathways, quiet down? Uh, and why would that happen? What would provoke the body to do that? And so one theory that has great appeal to me, but I label it as a theory, mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's been proven, Got it. is that both of these illnesses, MECFS and long COVID, and incidentally, the chronic post-infectious fatiguing illnesses 
that follow other infections, well-documented infections, like mononucleosis, like Lyme disease, like Ebola, like SARS. Why do all of these post-infectious chronic syndromes happen? What's going wrong that causes them to happen? And one theory that I find attractive is that when we become acutely ill, such as when we get the flu, we know what we feel like. We feel lousy, we don't have much energy, we ache and we don't want to move around much, we don't have much of an appetite, uh, we don't want to have sex. Our body is instructed through a well-orchestrated set of behavioral changes to quiet down energy-consuming behaviors so that the energy molecules that we have can be dedicated to fighting off the infection. And it's not just in humans. All animals that we've studied have this orchestrated set of behaviors when they get sick that are dedicated to preserving the energy molecules that we have for the fight that needs to be fought against the infection. But once the infection has gone, some bodies are still uh, thinking that I'm still sick in some way. Yeah. So that explains, that makes perfect sense to me anyway, as to why we have sickness behavior when we're acutely infected. But why in some people do we remain feeling very sick for months, years? And I think there's two possibilities. One is that the infection isn't really fully gone. Mm. With long COVID in particular, there's growing evidence that the virus may leave the respiratory tract fully, but still find harbors elsewhere in the body. There's even some in evidence that the, this RNA virus can integrate its genome into human cells and, and hide out there mm. as a chronic infection. So that's one possibility with long COVID and with some of these other post-infectious syndromes, that the virus appears to be gone, but in fact, if you do the right tests, it's still present. Or even if the virus is fully gone, it elicited inflammation that leads to a state of chronic inflammation by, by all sorts of mechanisms, by causing oxidative stress that damages tissue, that leads to an inflammatory response, that causes more oxidative stress, that leads to more inflammation, that the infection, like with COVID, sets off a chronic cycle of inflammation. Mm, a positive feedback loop. Yeah, exactly. A, a vicious cycle mm. that can't, that hasn't been stopped, uh, hasn't been intersected. That's, to me, a very plausible possibility. Mm. Some people would say the, maybe COVID virus, in, which definitely can infect the gut, changes the gut microbiome in such a way that the gut microbiome is a source of chronic inflammation. And that's what makes people with long COVID persistently sick. 
I think all of these possibilities are very plausible. Not only that, I don't think just one of them is going to prove to be true. I, my guess is that in different people with long COVID, the source of their ongoing symptoms may come from something different. It may be uh, the virus has a harbor in the gut wall and it's causing inflammation or the virus in someone else has changed the gut microbiome or in another person, the virus has elicited autoantibodies that act on targets in the brain that make people sleepy and fatigued, for instance, like the orexin receptor. And so, so it's, uh, it's, it's complicated or it's potentially complicated. Yes. No, I mean, all of us wish it were simple. The people doing the research and the people suffering the condition, I just, as I look at the evidence coming in, I don't think there's going to be a simple answer. Is there a becoming recommended diagnostic approach for long COVID? Is it largely just patient analysis or is it, are there diagnostic tools that you are now using more widely? Unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because everyone who practices medicine, when a patient walks into the office, wants to have a way of definitively diagnosing whatever is bothering the patient and a proven treatment that will improve things for the patient. Both MECFS and with long COVID, I would say we don't have either of those things yet. There are, with MECFS, a whole group of biological variables, call them biomarkers, that do a pretty good job of discriminating people with MECFS from healthy subjects. But they haven't yet been tested, these diagnostic tests, on patients with other fatiguing illnesses like multiple sclerosis or lupus or major depression. And until those tests are shown to discriminate MECFS from these other fatiguing illnesses, we can't say that there, there is an available diagnostic test. With long COVID, I think it's, diagnostic tests uh, appear to be farther away. Just as a heads up, folks, in setting up this interview with Professor Komarov, I asked him if he was across a new drug therapy treatment in the United States, pioneered by former Stanford professor, Dr. Bruce Patterson, at a private company called Incel DX. In the next episode of this long COVID series, I actually interviewed Dr. Patterson from Incel DX about his drug therapy that, despite appearing to be quite successful in treating long COVID, has not been picked up by major health institutions. I haven't been able to figure out why. So I asked today's rather esteemed guest, Professor Komarov, whether he was familiar with Dr. Patterson's drug therapy approach, which looks at, among other things, CCR5 inhibition. So CCR5 is a protein on the surface of white blood cells that's involved in the immune system. I really don't know anything about those hypotheses beyond saying that the CCR5 and the monocytic endothelial platelet axis hypotheses, I think, are entirely plausible and definitely worth pursuing with trials such as are ongoing. Right. Thank you for, thank you for that, because it is an interesting approach that 
incel decks are taking and so but it does seem quite different to some of the other approaches around the world hence my investigation so i think in the uk their approach and other parts of the us their approach is well it's more of a treatment for the symptoms a rehabilitation basically in the same way as um, mecfs treatment it's a rehabilitation slowly getting people able to live a life again whereas what incel dx are doing is a a drug therapy which is having a different it appears to be having a different impact so interesting there isn't a lot of evidence that rehabilitation approaches have been very effective in mecfs and that means unfortunately that they may not be very effective in long covid that i would be more bullish about uh, finding the silver bullets that intersect the underlying biological processes that ultimately lead to the symptoms of the illness. Mm. So that that would be my bias. Yeah. Do you have any advice for general practitioners? Admittedly, you know, to, you are working on research as to the, the causes, the pathogenesis of long COVID. You're not in the treatment space uh, now. Do you have any thoughts for general practitioners or rheumatologists, oncologists? Yeah, I would say this, that I believe that long COVID for at least the next several years until more is learned about it is going to be as frustrating to many primary care physicians, rheumatologists, and oncologists as patients with MECFS have been, as patients with fibromyalgia have been, as patients with well-documented cancers who now appear to be cancer-free but still have a debilitating chronic fatigue that has no apparent explanation. There are, there are patients like that. My advice is, as a practicing physician who cared for patients with MECFS for 40 years, I lived constantly with the frustration that I did not have a diagnostic test or an FDA-approved treatment. But the question in my mind was, was there something real going on here that deserved our sympathy and deserved us trying treatments that might help the patients and that often did relieve symptoms, if not cure the disease? Uh, and I think we're going to be in that situation with long COVID for another year or two. I'm an optimist. I think maybe two years out, we're going to have both some definitive diagnostic tests for long COVID and MECFS, as well as a few proven therapies that may not be curative, but definitely improve symptoms and level of function. That day isn't here yet. Not yet, but I love that you're an optimist. That was Professor Anthony L. Komarov from Harvard Medical School. But stay tuned because we're not finished yet. Today's podcast is, as I said, the first in a series of long COVID special podcasts where we feature more than one expert each episode. Coming up right now is Professor Martin Henscher. He's the Henry Baldwin Professorial Research Fellow in Health System Sustainability 
at the Menzies Institute for Medical Research at the University of Tasmania in Hobart. And as professor in health economics and epidemiology, he's been modeling long COVID stats for Australia. What should doctors be preparing for? Let's hear what Martin Henscher has to say. Professor Henscher, in your modeling, how did you categorize what long COVID actually is? I think where people have landed internationally and in Australia is that we're talking about people who are displaying quite a wide range of possible symptoms, but really at 12 weeks or three months after their initial COVID uh, infection. And I think kind of central to most cases of long COVID is extreme fatigue, so kind of chronic fatigue symptoms, often accompanied by what people have come to call brain fog, you know, so sort of um, mild cognitive impairment, but that actually is, you know, often with people directly impeding decision-making, thought processes, etc., maybe still quite frequently with some sort of lingering respiratory problems, muscle and joint pain, and then a kind of much wider variety of diverse sort of symptoms. And obviously, you know, there's various clinical guidelines and things that we can talk about, which will describe this much better than I can verbally. The key thing is three months stroke 12 weeks after the infection is what really is qualifying it as long covid I think the, the other thing to be aware, though, is increasingly it is becoming clear uh, kind of internationally that people are popping up who had thought that their original COVID had resolved and they'd felt better and fully recovered. But then, you know, some months down the track, in many cases, are actually now presenting with long COVID symptoms. So I think what is distinctive, though, is people who really had thought they were better and then experiencing a big setback. So the chronic fatigue type symptoms are one aspect of what we call, you know, long COVID. For simplicity, we'll just refer to it as long COVID for the podcast. But there's also another type that relates to organ damage or other kind of issues that will be experienced. That's right. So in particular, we're seeing heightened rates of type 2 diabetes and various mental health disorders. And there's increasing evidence of kind of confirmed, let's say, damage to various organ systems. So particularly, obviously, the lungs, uh, but also cardiovascular system. You know, many listeners will have heard various of the things about the kind of neurological damage, which is showing up. So that's Interesting, because that is obviously raises a slightly different question, which is, so is this group, you know, the the people who have experienced these various kinds of uh, damage to different organs, are they going to be at increased risk of potentially more serious, possibly even life-threatening illness down the track? And, uh, you know, the, the nature of the things that are appearing in some people would suggest that this is something to be taken quite seriously. And it's complicated further because there is some overlap between the kind of chronic fatigue type long COVID patients and people who have suffered these other sort of insults to various um, organ systems, but they're not identical. So it's kind of more like a Venn diagram, Mm -hmm. if you like, with an overlap in the middle. Um, So that's quite complex. 
It's a, an emerging field of research. And so let's look at your research as an economist. What does your modelling indicate Australia has in store with regard to long COVID? So uh, really, we our most recent modelling, which is now already maybe three months old, two or three months old, or what we were attempting to say was, given the scale of the kind of the Omicron wave that we were seeing over the summer, we wanted to come up with some you know, broad estimates of how many long COVID cases might we expect that to generate, but also in particular, how many people might we expect still to be experiencing long COVID a year after their initial infection. Because I think it is important to say the international evidence suggests that quite a lot of people who might be showing signs of long COVID at three months say quite a lot of them actually those symptoms will resolve over time. But there is uh, there, there's a you know not significant sort of group of, of, of people internationally and indeed a small group of people in even in this country who've actually had long COVID for two years now. So that it's and obviously that duration is particularly important both from a kind of clinical but also from an economic and social perspective. So we were trying to get our heads around that. Um, we made some estimates of how big we might thought we thought the Omicron wave might be, and we were pretty close. So but also the best, really the best sources of data on prevalence of long COVID in the community actually come from the UK, from some huge surveys that the UK Office for National Statistics have done. And they've done a lot of work and they used various methods to get a range of estimates. So we took that and we applied them to the Australian data. Kind of our central scenarios suggested we might see between 80,000 and 325,000 people who might experience long COVID at the three months point after their initial infection. And then a year later, it might be as few as 14,000 or as many as 170,000 people nationally might still be experiencing long COVID at the 12-month point after their right. infection. And we did some other scenarios. We also tried to account for the likely impacts of vaccination on whether you develop long COVID. I'm, uh, I should have said that is actually one of the, that is a protective factor rather than a risk factor. But so what sort of health services will people with long COVID need? So if we're equipping GPs and uh, the health services to respond to such a huge number of people, what's, re what's required? In a way, the, the clue is in the numbers. So I think what's required for most people, as is the case with most chronic conditions, is really good primary care. And I think in the general practice, that's particularly about obviously initial diagnosis and sort of, uh, let's call it sympathetic management of patients. Many people probably, you know, they need a diagnosis, they'll need some help with specific symptoms, you know, but uh, and that might be well within the capabilities of general practice. So, you know, help with maybe anxiety and depression, for example, or sleep problems, etc., I would say a reasonable number of people will, might well need help with rehabilitation, particularly physiotherapy, um, although uh, there is you know, significant debates about what is actually the right approach to physio yeah. and physical rehabilitation. Um, and in particular, it does seem to be the case that excessive exercise and pushing too hard on physical rehabilitation can actually set people back. Also, perhaps referring patients to 
social support if uh, you know they're in a place where they can't look after themselves they might need it no, d- definitely and that's that's maybe something we can come back to because i think obviously at the moment there aren't really any sort of specific kind of social or welfare supports for people with long covid and that's maybe that that is that certainly is an issue but yes i think you know clearly one of the key things and this i think is where we're less clear internationally is people with long covid are clearly on a spectrum from people who some months after their infection they've got maybe one or two long covid symptoms they're struggling with fatigue etc but you know they're maybe they're able to work but it's hard work for them but they're struggling a bit but they're still able to go to work etc right through to you know some group of people who are really debilitated by this who are just you know can't work anymore uh, struggle with basic activities of daily living and i think the missing piece for me at the moment really is what's the kind of the distribution of severity across this the big numbers we're talking about is really just people showing symptoms of long covid not necessarily that all of those people will be severely disabled but there are absolutely are some people who to you know by all standard definitions are disabled by this and it's having very severe impacts on their on all aspects of their lives yeah GPs could be a key in that you you mentioned sympathetic management in helping patients engage with their employer for example, to helping the employer understand the severity of symptoms, what might be a an appropriate level of work for an individual. Absolutely, absolutely. Economically, this is going to potentially have an impact as well, or are other numbers not that huge? It's going to be much bigger than a billion-dollar question, but that's the multi-billion-dollar question for Australia. So, look, we, of course, by good fortune and good management in the first 18 months of the pandemic, because we didn't have many COVID infections for the, for the first 18 months, but in the UK and the US in particular, where, you know, they've obviously had these terrible kind of enormous levels of infection over a long period of time now, I think certainly the US is now becoming very concerned about what actually is the economic implications of this, how many people are going to be pushed out of the workforce, what does it mean for their kind of disability benefit system, are people actually just going to fall through the cracks, all of those issues are becoming very real in the US and some some people in the US are, are bandying around really quite big numbers of, of what the impact will be. I think in Australia, if we respond correctly and also do what we can to kind of mitigate further waves of COVID infections, I think the impact will be less severe than it will be in many other countries, but it will be very real. And for the individuals, it absolutely is significant. So I I think, yes, the, the role of general practitioners in supporting their patients, particularly supporting their patients with their employers, with, yeah, maybe negotiating more flexible working, talking to employers about, you know, are there ways we can accommodate these people to when they're having a bad few days, they can step back. But then when they're, when they're feeling up to the task, they can be back at work. That'll be really critical because I think, you know, we all understand that the moving into the welfare system and disability, et cetera, works for some people, but doesn't work for others and can 
you know, leave leave many people quite exposed to risks. So, you know, I think that's a key point that GPs could play a very important role supporting their patients with that. Yeah. And what about other diagnostics? Sure. So, as I say, we're kind of skirting close to sort of clinical advice, which I don't want to be, <laughs> don't want to be giving. But I think coming back to this issue, there's a proportion of people. It's a sort of, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a low percentage, but it's non-trivial. There's this group of people who maybe have actually got more significant issues going on, and it's really important. So, yes, if somebody is presenting to you with respiratory problems, it would be very important to give them the appropriate diagnostics to make sure or to rule out that there isn't something more significant going on there versus obviously weighing against the risk of overdiagnosis. You know, if we've got sort of maybe in a worst case, hundreds of thousands of people coming forwards, we don't necessarily want to be sending all of them off for scans for, um, and then kind of tripping a, a, low, a cascade of over, overdiagnosis for other issues. So that's something where yeah, GPs, you know, I mean, that that's the skill and the kind of unique ability of general practice, isn't it, is is to filter that stuff. Uh, that's what makes them so good at what they do. At the other end, I think what I would say is there clearly is a place for specialist long COVID clinics, you know, that bring together multidisciplinary teams to deal with people with really complex and more severe needs. That's really important. But I think the experience, particularly in the UK and the US, shows that what you can't do is anybody who's appearing with long COVID symptoms, you can't then just refer them off the long COVID clinic because the numbers overwhelm the system very rapidly. So the long COVID clinics really have to be reserved for complex patients with more complex needs who need tertiary services to support them. It could be that long COVID becomes one of those chronic diseases that are just part of our our day-to-day life. I think that is a very plausible scenario that, that yeah, long COVID or, you know, whatever we end up mm. calling it um, becomes another, you know, quite prevalent chronic disease. Um, hope, you know, eventually one would hope large scale COVID infections would become less frequent. It sounds like we might have not dodged a bullet, but reduced the potential for such for bigger numbers by being vaccinated, all those terrible lockdowns and waiting for everyone to get vaccinated may have actually served us in some way if it if it reduces the numbers of long COVID for our community. Oh, unquestionably. Look, we have by, you know, really suppressing numbers. I mean, but what I would say, though, is it isn't over yet and we really do need to Think harder and more critically about what prevention measures uh, we actually could br- could bring to bear on this. And I do think some of the less intrusive ones, but like you know, not being too quick to get rid of mandatory mask wearing, we really you know, however much people might not like it, we need to have a serious discussion about what actually what are the things we need to do, as well as of course maintaining vaccination, you know, working out what really is the right future for boosters. But I think in particular, also kind of working rapidly towards better vaccines, which actually are more effective at stopping uh, transmission. And getting the word out about long COVID and helping people understand this. Absolutely. It's it's going to be impacting. So, No, uh, absolutely. And I think health professionals need to understand this clearly, but also 
I think particularly, you know, politicians and the business community need to understand this better as well, that this this has quite significant implications for healthcare funding, possibly for NDIS funding, you know, if, if larger numbers of people did end up being kind of long-term disabled by this, has implications for occupational health and safety, all these kinds of things. So there's, so there's yes, there's a, a lot. A bigger conversation to be yeah. had. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, one thing I would like really to say, which I think is one of the other themes which has come out in other countries, which I I, I, I think it's really important that um, Australian general practice has an opportunity to do better here, is a there has been a strong sense clearly from many long COVID patients that they actually they haven't been taken seriously by the healthcare system, that they've been sort of brushed off with a, you know, literally, or in some cases, it's all, it's all in your mind, you know, go home and sort yourself out. And I think we can avoid that now. Uh, we don't necessarily need to be sending everybody off for incredibly intensive therapies, but I think GPs have a crucial role in taking patients seriously, really just being aware over coming months, people presenting with fatigue or let's say ill-defined symptoms, long COVID needs to really be front of mind as a possibility and just, yes, to take that possibility seriously Mm. with people. Do we have any numbers on how people who have long COVID at three months, how many still have it one year later? Well, we do from some of some of this UK work. It's possible to extrapolate, but you get quite wide uncertainty intervals. So I think, look, it's probably in a range from maybe from the UK data, maybe about 10% of people who've had a COVID infection might be experiencing long COVID at three months. Then, but at, out at the 12 month point, that might be as high as 5% down to less than 1% of people still actually uh, showing long COVID symptoms at a year. And so that's pretty uncertain. Mm. Um, And yeah, we need better work to do. So maybe up to half of the people who have long COVID at three months may still have long COVID at 12 months. That's possible from some of the international data. That, that That is possible. But there's still some uncertainty around that research. Definitely, definitely. There's there's a lot of uncertainty in there. I think one of one of the things which is actually disappointing that that we and others have been asking for for a long time now is that we in Australia we really don't have any good surveillance systems set up for this. So I think we've lost time, and I, I certainly believe. You know, there's some good research projects being set up, but I believe that the Australian Bureau of Statistics actually needs to be in the field doing big surveys and population surveys with COVID testing, et cetera, and they need to get that going now. And long COVID needs to be one of the key variables that they're measuring just so that we have some decent population surveillance. And they can just copy what the ONS has done in in the UK, to be honest. They don't have to invent anything new. They can copy that. But we really need that surveillance. And at the moment, we don't. So we are, sadly, we're flying a bit blind. And have you communicated that to the ABS? Uh, I've communicated to that as to as many people as would listen. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's, it's complex. But I think, you know, after the election, whoever's in power, I think that's a critical priority and the ABS needs to be resourced to do that urgently. Thank you very much, Martin Henscher. I really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. That was Professor Martin Henscher from University of Tasmania. 
he joined Professor Anthony Komaroff in this, our first of long COVID podcast specials. Next episode in the Long COVID series, we look at treatment options from around the world. I speak with doctors from Australia, USA and the United Kingdom about how they're treating their patients at long COVID clinics. But that's it for now. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for taking a break and joining me in the tea room. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.